Hello and welcome to the Thriving on Purpose broadcast for this week. My name is Sebastian Richard, and this week we're going to be talking about tithing. So the title of this uh, teaching, it's a two-part series, so keep that in mind. We're going to address a first part of tithing and a second part. Uh, so it's a two-part series. It's, it's pretty lengthy. Uh, so the title is To Tithe or Not to Tithe? That is the question. I got that from Shakespeare. I thought it was pretty appropriate for what I'm about to teach because, let's face it, it's a pretty controversial subject. And I know that either way, whichever way I would go with this, even if there's like five different ways, some people would disagree, be offended, or whatnot. My goal is not to offend anybody. My goal is to try to uh, help anybody who might have been questioning the question of tithing to maybe get some answers or revelations as to what does the scripture say? What does God want for today? Uh, what is this whole tithing business? Should I be doing it? Should I, should I refrain from doing it? Should I completely change it and do it a whole new, a whole new way? That's what we're going to be looking at today. So before I begin, make sure you click the like button on this video. Make sure you subscribe to our channel, the Thriving on Purpose channel on YouTube, uh, so that we, uh, we may uh, be able to notify you when new teachings come out. So to tithe or not to tithe, that is the question. Is tithing still for today? So if you've been a regular listener of the Thriving on Purpose broadcast, for a while anyway, then you're probably familiar with what we've been teaching about money, what we've been teaching about stewardship for the last few years. Uh, so throughout the years, we've done many teachings that had to do with money. I never done any teaching that had to do with tithing, but I've done many teachings concerning uh wealth management or money or what God expects of us with money and all that stuff. Uh, we did a, a webinar that was titled Poverty is No Virtue. So you can go on YouTube and check that out. It's available for free on YouTube. Just uh, type in Poverty is No Virtue web webinar. It's on our channel, the Thriving on Purpose channel. Uh, we also did a, uh, a teaching series that is available on the Thriving on Purpose Academy. And the teaching series is called Prospering God's Way, Prospering God's Way, where we look at all the biblical uh, components of what does biblical prosperity look like? What is it supposed to, uh, what's it supposed to be? What are we supposed to do with the wealth that God entrusts with uh, to us? And of course, it, like I said, if you've been following Thriving on Purpose, you're probably familiar with the book I wrote called Five Reasons God Wants You to Prosper. In fact, I'm just going to pop it in right now. Uh, Put in the uh, you might not might want to know what the cover looks like. So this is it. There's a nice, a beautiful green tree on it. Five reasons God wants you to prosper. If you haven't read this book, it's helped a lot of people. I uh, got some great reviews on Amazon for it. People are, are really liking the content of that book. See, the book is not about making you prosperous. It's more about addressing the mindset that you have or that you may have concerning finances. So what the book does, it really helps you to align your thoughts with God's thoughts on finances, money, wealth, and prosperity. So that once you fix the, because, you know, as human beings, we're all broken. We all have all kinds of uh bad thoughts or, or uh, perverse thinking when it comes to money. Uh some some have reverse thinking, uh, thinking uh, with a sense of entitlement. They think they should be multi-billionaires. Uh, that's a type of perverse thinking. But there's the other type that's more common, which is a poverty mindset, where people think that 
if you're a believer, you should be poor because you're more like Jesus and it makes you humble and this and that. And this is all stuff that I debunk in the, the, the book as well. So you might want to get your hands on that book. It really is a mindset book where biblically speaking, I help the reader align his thoughts with the thoughts of God on money and wealth to help the reader understand what God requires, what God expects of us when it comes to money. So that said, um, if you're acquainted with any, any one of those teachings I just mentioned, including the book, well, you've probably noticed that at the Thriving on Purpose uh, broadcast, Thriving on Purpose Ministries, uh, we we teach quite a bit about uh, wealth and about money. But but if you have been following us, you've probably noticed as well that we barely, if ever, mention the word tithing. Now we talk about giving tons, like tons. But we don't talk about tithing much. When there's a reason for that, and as it will be unraveled in these two uh, uh, teaching, uh, the teachings that I'm going to give right now. So, in light of the current trending conversations that you've probably noticed on social media, on YouTube, on Facebook, and all all the social media platforms this week, uh, obviously um, there's been a lot of conversation in the last week about tithing and we know why there's a very famous prosperity preacher who came out this week and did a very impactful sermon where he basically repented of teaching about tithing uh it was actually shocking uh well i'm just going to say it because i'm not coming against him at all so it's creflo dollar so creflo dollar came out and, uh, and he repented of that. He said that he, that he had the wrong mindset and the wrong teaching when it came to tithing for the last 20 years. So that was a big deal. Uh, it's a big deal when a preacher has the humility to come out and say, hey, you know what? What I've taught for the last 20 years, it's really bad. Don't, don't watch any of those videos. Don't read any of those books. He actually encouraged the, the listeners uh, to uh, to burn his books. I mean, I was I was in shock to hear that. Uh, well, shock. Shock's a big word. But I was like, okay, you know what? Uh, that's good. I mean, I, it, it's good that he has, I guess, uh, the courage to do that, to come out and say it. So I'm not going to say uh, I'm not get, I'm not here to criticize uh, Mr. Dollar, Creflo, or, or any other prosperity preacher out there. I'm just here to give you my two cents on tithing. And yes, that is a pun. I'm going to give you my two cents on tithing. So, so all this to say that uh, Creflo said he was still growing and learning on these matters. And he encouraged people to, like I said, burn his books and his tapes and CDs. And so it was, it was a big deal. And so it kind of went viral in the Christian community. Uh, so the only problem that I had with the whole thing was the stance, the angle through which he came to that conclusion. So the conclusion I agreed with. Basically, he said that he believed that tithing was not still for today in the sense that we have been doing it, you know, giving a tenth of your income to your local church every every Sunday. He says that that that's not for today. And uh, I, I totally appreciate that. Uh, what I didn't agree with is this stance or the angle through which he came to that conclusion. So basically he came to this conclusion by like many others before him, by the way, he's not alone. So there's others who kind of changed their minds or their, their mindsets about tithing, who've kind of changed their rhetoric uh, throughout the last couple of years. So, so the, the, the angle is this, Hey, 
we're not under the law anymore. We're New Testament, right? So we're under grace. So since we're under grace, and we know that the law has been done away with, tithing being an Old Testament thing should also be done away with. That's the mindset. That's the angle that is prevalent when a preacher, whether it be uh, Creflo this, this week or others that you might have heard uh, in the last few years or whatnot, that's usually the angle they, they use when they get to that conclusion. Is, right, tithing is not for today because we're under grace. So the, the conclusion is tithing is not for today. Okay. But the because we're not we're under grace, I, I kind of disagree with that. And I'm gonna I'm gonna get to this. So, like I said, I believe that indeed, indeed, it is not required for Christians to tithe today. But okay, but I do not believe it is because everything that is quote unquote under the law is done away with. So I'm gonna unpack this for you here today. And you're going to understand where I'm coming from. And by the way, this is not a cop-out. I, I, I want to really give a disclaimer right now. This two series teachings is not a cop-out against tithing just for the sake of being more miserly. If you've been following Thriving on Purpose, you know that we're all about giving generously and giving even more than 10%, actually way more. So it, and we're going to get to that throughout this uh, two-part series, but I just want to make that clear from the very get-go. First of all, if you are tithing, if you've been a faithful tither and you have been blessed and you are prospering, I'm not saying stop doing that. What I want to do is give you uh, different scriptural angles and different uh, a different understanding of what you're actually doing to maybe either keep doing it if God is blessing you or giving you a conviction to do it, or maybe tweak it and change it and improve it and do it in a, a better way, it may be a more new covenant, new covenantial way. If that's even a word, new covenantial. Anyway, so I'm just saying this is not a cop-out and this is not me uh, trying to encourage Christian Christianity to be, or Christians to be more miserly. We are kingdom people. We serve the King of Kings. And if there's one thing that we shouldn't be, is misers or, or scrooges when it comes to giving, being generous, and uh, being conduits of wealth. Now, we're not called to be reservoirs. We're called to be rivers of wealth. I say that all the time. So if you've been following me, you know that that's where I stand. Okay. Now, I'm glad I got this out of the way because I, I think that's really important that I say this at the beginning. So the, 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 the point that I want to make is that when you teach, I don't believe that we should tithe because tithing is under the law, you're moving on to very dangerous grounds. The angle of it, not the, not the actual conclusion, but the angle you're using to get to that conclusion. So yes, I will say this, even if your conclusion is based on Paul's letters, so Paul wrote 13, I think 13 letters in the, whole, in the New Testament. Even if you're basing it on his writings and coming to that conclusion through his writings, it's still very dangerous ground. So in, in Paul's letters, you will find Paul both endorsing the law and cursing it in some places. So Paul, <laughs> this alone, this fact alone makes Paul's letters very complex, very, very complex. And if you're not trained 
to wield the word of truth properly, like a sword, like you would a sword. You can be misled into believing the wrong things. So a lot of cases can be made about, about Paul's writings. Some people came up and says, no, you see, Paul is not against the law, and here's why. And they, they went and grabbed some passages where Paul actually says the law is good, uh, endorsing the law, saying how the law is holy and all that stuff. And there's other passages where he's basically cursing it and saying that we're not under the law and this is done away with and dead and blah, 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 blah. So if you're not trained and you're not careful, you can fall into very dangerous traps. Even Peter, the apostle Peter said this of Paul's letters. So in 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 15 and 16, here's what Peter says. He says, regard the patience of our Lord as salvation, even as our beloved brother Paul also, according to the wisdom given to him, wrote to you. As also in all of his letters, speaking in them of these things. Now in those, now Paul's referring to Paul's letters, in those, there are some things that are hard to understand which the ignorant and unsettled twist as they also do the other scriptures to the to their own destruction so what's peter said peter saying here peter is basically saying says look first of all he's saying that uh, paul has written some good stuff some good letters where uh, people are uh, uh where, where Paul is uh, talking about the, the, the patience of the Lord and, 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 and all the good stuff and wisdom. Uh, but he's saying there's also stuff he, he speaks of in his letters that is complex. And because it is complex, the unlearned or the ignorant or the unsettled, those who are not firm in their faith, firmly anchored in the word of truth, they tend to twist it. As they also do what? The other scriptures. If you're going to twist Paul, you're going to, you might as, might as well twist the Torah, might as well twist uh, the Psalms. I mean, you're going to twist all kinds of scriptures. And then he says, to their own destruction. So it's very dangerous. I, I, I always, uh, I tell my wife sometimes, I said, man, I wish Paul had done uh, more of a, had been more <laughs> attentive in writing his letters um, in, in, in thinking like, is this going to be misunderstood? Probably. Maybe I should expand on that because there's some places where Paul says stuff and you're kind of left like kind of stunned and you're not quite sure like where is he going with this like what is that fully meaning and unfortunately we need well not unfortunately but fortunately we were given the holy spirit so we can read these letters with wisdom and prayer and discern what is being said but unfortunately a lot of people don't do that so they twist it and it brings them to uh like peter says potential destruction and in some cases some very bad doctrines and very bad understandings and yes destruction so now I want to talk about regarding the greater authority. Why am I talking about regarding the greater authority? I'm talking about this when you're reading the scriptures, there's something that is called scripture interpretation, scripture understanding, what in Bible colleges they call hermeneutics. hermeneutics. So it's basically uh, the, uh, the interpretation of scripture. So there's a component in hermeneutics where you, if you have a certain opinion that differs from one book to the other, or from one author to the other, that quite is quite different, then you need to look at the author itself. Like we know the, the whole the author of the whole scriptures is God. 
okay, through the Holy Spirit, he inspired men to write on his behalf. But maybe Solomon is saying something different than Paul, or maybe Jesus is saying something different than Paul. So when you have that problem where two verses seem to really contradict one another, you need to go with the greater authority. Who has greater authority in these matters that I'm reading? And, and it's a, there's a whole science to hermeneutics that, that needs to be applied, but that's one of the things. So I want to talk about regarding the greater authority. So when two people, like I said, seem to speak of the same matter, offering seemingly, seemingly different views, we must go with the side that has the bigger guns. I think that's fairly simple enough. In other words, when pressed between two varying views on a single matter of doctrine or truth, the safest route is to go with the person with the most authority or credibility. Okay? For example, on the same doctrinal matter, would you consider who would you consider has more weight? The books of Moses, also called the Torah, or the Song of Songs. So let's say there's a verse in the Song of Songs that says a certain thing, and there's other verses that say that seem to indicate a different angle or something different from the pen of Moses in the Torah. What do you think bears most authority? We could both are, we could say, well, it's scripture, it's scripture, it's scripture. But sometimes scripture seems to contradict one another. So the safest route in that situation is to go, well, I'm gonna go with Moses. Why? Well, he has more authority. He was uh, called to write the first five books of the law that had more weight in the whole of scriptures from which we got more teachings throughout the scriptures than Song of Songs, which is a little bit more isolated and has less, I guess you could say, authority because of the type of book it is and the type of book it's meant to be. So all that stuff. So, for example, the writings of King David or those of Jude. So King David wrote quite a bit extensively and especially in the Psalms. And there's Jude who's got this one little book, one little chapter. What if they contradict one another? Who would sh should we go with? So in a type like this, it would be a little tricky because now you have Jude who's New Testament. Maybe he got a new revelation. So you have to consider that as well. Or is he really contradicting in a sure way what David is saying? So you have to, that's what I'm talking about. Hermeneutics is, is not as easy as it seems. So let me illustrate this point with a story. Okay. Because I'm going somewhere with this. Believe it or not, I'm going somewhere with this teaching. And it has to do with tithing. And I'm going to get to that. But there's a lot of stuff that I need to unpack before I actually address uh, the scriptural uh, passages about tithing and all that stuff. So right, right now what I'm doing is I'm talking about uh, discerning what should we look at, who should we consider has more weight when they say this and that in the scriptures about tithing. So there's this story of a young man who was in seminary, who fell in love with a pastor's daughter. Now, they started the, uh, to have, uh, they started to date, to, to see one another, and he was invited for a Sunday meal, Sunday night meal, at his beloved's house. So once he was invited there, he mustered the courage to ask her father for her hand in marriage. So he's alone with the dad in the den after the meal. And he's like, there's my chance. So I'm going to I'm going to talk to her father and I'm going to express my feelings for her. And I'm going to ask for her hand. And he does so. And he does so with poise and, and courage. And he does it well. But the father is a very stern man. He's a pastor and very stern. 
And he replied to the young man with a single verse. So he looks at the young man and he quotes Paul to him saying that it was a good thing for Paul to remain single. And he, quote, he quotes from 1 Corinthians 7, verse 8. He says, now to the unmarried and the widows, I say it is good for them to stay unmarried as I do. But the young man, undeterred, answered and said, Ah, yes, sir. However, when applying good hermeneutics, one must also consider the most authoritative source in order to conclude a matter with certainty. Paul was single, and he had, seemingly, the gift of celibacy. He also was not acquainted with being or having been, or having been married. However, Solomon had over 700 wives and 300 concubines. And it was him who said in Proverbs 18.22, he who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. So he's, the young man said, therefore, on the matter of marriage, I believe Solomon would know best. So the young man by being wise and showing how, first of all, how much he loved that young woman, but also being wise, was able to make his point with the father and the rest, as they say, is history. So the father uh, gave, a, gave permission and everything went, went well. But the story is very, uh, I think is a very powerful one because it really shows us how to use good her hermeneutics. I hope I pronounced this. I probably massacred the word a couple times so far. The problem with me is that I don't, and that's surrounded with, well, I'm surrounded by English-speaking people, but I don't discuss theological matters with that many people verbally. It's often through texting and all kinds of stuff. So sometimes I just don't know how to pronounce words, especially since I'm French. Anyway, so the same thing can be said of the law. So my whole point about this, using basically two views and saying, okay, how do I weigh this? How do I how do I use the spirit of God, the spirit that that wisdom God gave me, to bring this matter to a conclusion? Well, let's talk about the law because we know Paul talks about the law quite a bit, right? And a lot of the misunderstandings that came pertaining to the law, unfortunately, came through his writings, or rather, I shouldn't say through the writings of Paul, but through the interpretation of the writings of Paul. And that's why. Unfortunately, we got a lot of denominations thinking a lot of different things. So there are basically two views that Christians have of the old covenant laws today. And you're probably familiar with those two views. Number one, uh, it's called antinomianism. It's basically the law has been done away with. We're free from the law. Simple as that. We're not under the law. It's done away with. It's Old Testament. We're under New Testament, and it's it's uh, the grace. It's grace, grace, grace. That's all it is. Number two is called, uh, and it's a four-letter word in most Christian circles. It's called legalism, but legalism has varying degrees. There's varying degrees, but so does antinomianism, and we're going to look at that. So number two is legalism, and basically says we're still required to obey at least part of the law, and we will be judged by our works, even though we're saved by grace. So that's what is called in many circles. It's a four-letter word. It's called legalism. 
So both views, antinomianism and legalism, legalism, sorry. So both views do express some truth. Both antinomianism and legalism, unfortunately, can also be taken to extremes. And I have always preached and taught against extremes of any kind. So whether you're an extremist in antinomianism or an extremist in legalism, it's going to lead to wrong thinking. It's going to lead to wrong biblical living, wrong biblical application, wrong biblical understanding. So what does extreme antinomianism do? Well, the, the fancy word antinomianism is, like I said, is uh, uh, we're under grace. It's all through grace. We're not under the law anymore. But this can be taken to an extreme. I call it greasy grace. You've probably heard me say that on the broadcast before. Greasy grace. So and extreme antinomianism leads believers to greasy grace or easy believism which can make one slack, lukewarm, and it can even make people believe they are saved when in fact they are not. That's how dangerous extreme antinomianism can be. Now, extreme legalism is no better. Now, extreme legalism, legalism can lead believers back under a yoke of bondage and slavery that Christ meant to free us from. And it can also bring you into profound spiritual pride, profound spiritual pride. I mean, I've met some legalists uh, in, in my uh, day, extreme conservative Christians, um, some um, Hebrew roots, and, and, I'm, and I'm part Hebrew roots. In other words, there's a lot of things about Hebrew roots that I appreciate and that I apply in my own life. But I've met some people who took this to extremes and it was absolutely completely wrong-headed. Like they were headed the wrong way with this and it was just wrong, 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 wrong. There was no more grace left, okay? So it can be very dangerous and a lot of the problems stem from pride. When you embark into uh, extreme legalism, you start developing spiritual pride. Well, I know this and I know that and I apply this and I apply that. So you start thinking you're better than other people. It's very dangerous. But here's the question. Is there something in between? Is there a middle ground? And I believe there absolutely is a middle ground between those both those two extremes. Those two extremes. So in regards to anything found in the Bible, I will always give more weight. So we're going back now to, uh, the, the two, when two people voice their their uh, are voiced in the in the, the Bible and they speak on the same matter and they seem to speak almost contradict sorry about that contradictions. So when two people of of, of that wrote biblical text seem to contradict one another, you need to go with the side that has the most authority. And that's not always easy to decipher. Who has more authority, Peter or Paul? If you were to find two Bible passages that seem to contradict, James or, or Paul? Well, some would say Paul. Why? Because he wrote 13 letters. James wrote only one. So there's ways you can you, you can find that maybe seem to, to, to give you that, that uh, correct interpretation, but you got to be very, very Holy Spirit led to figure these things out. And that's what I'm trying to do here is to, to show you, okay, here's how we, we, we should do this. So if we're going to take two authorities on the matter of God's law, 
God's laws now that we're in the new covenant? Well, are they completely abolished or are we still required to follow them almost to a T? Well, it's neither, okay? <laughs> it's neither. So we're going to look at that. So let's look at what the Lord Jesus said, okay? Because we know that Paul, there's places where he endorses the law, places where he seems to crucify the law completely and, and say it's completely gone. So it's complicated. Let's look at what the Lord Jesus says. I find it so much safer when you want to establish a matter to go with the words of Jesus. Um, and I'm not saying that you, you put one book above another, but her, hermeneutics do that all the time. So you gotta, you gotta, you gotta be willing to do that when you're spirit led. So let's look at what Jesus said. Okay. In Matthew 27 verses 50 to 53, we're, we're shared something that's very, very interesting, a very interesting passage in Matthew where we read this. So it's Matthew 27, verses 50 to 53, talking about the death of Jesus. Jesus cried again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. In other words, he just died. Behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from the top to the bottom. The earth quaked and the rocks were split. The tombs were opened. And many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they entered into the holy city and appeared to many. Whoa! Matthew is the only gospel that shares this fact. And it's a whopper. Like saints literally literally rose up, became alive again, and they appeared to many. So they were resurrected at the death of Jesus. But the, the most interesting part that I want to point out here is that the temple's veil that separates the, the Holy of Holies from, from the rest was torn into from top to bottom when that earthquake happened right after Jesus died and said what? It is accomplished. When Jesus said those words, it is accomplished. And he gave his spirit, he let out his spirit, and, and he came, went back to the Father. The Father ripped the veil of the temple, which was very symbolic of everything sacrificial. He ripped it in half. Now, this is huge. This was God saying, that the perfect sacrifice had been done once and for all in the person of Jesus Christ. The Lamb of God had fulfilled everything that needed to be fulfilled. So we're given a physical sign that the law was indeed done away with at that very moment. But, but, which law exactly or which part of the law exactly? You see, the veil of the temple being torn by God himself indicated that not all law or all of the law was done away with, but rather that the sacrificial laws were done away with. So the sacrificial laws and the temple laws were done away with. That's what this meant, not the whole law. Now, we are told in the gospel 
by John the Baptist that Jesus was the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus was the perfect sacrifice who fulfilled once and for all all of the sacrificial laws and all of the blood sacrifice requirements of the Mosaic law. That was completely done on that at that moment. Furthermore, Jesus had also prophesied the destruction of the temple, which happened in 70 AD when the Roman army attacked Jerusalem. In, in Matthew 24 and Mark 13, he told his disciples the following. He said, and as he, it says, as he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. They were in awe because this was architectural genius. Of course it was. I mean, it was God guided the, the building of his own temple, right? So it, it was architecturally incredible to behold. And Jesus said to the disciple, do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. So in his very own teachings, Jesus never said that he would cancel the law, however. So he did prophesy the destruction of the temple, and it began, not the destruction began at his death. It didn't be, begin uh, in 70 AD. It was completed in 70 AD, but at his death, the, the, the temple had become uh, obsolete in, to some degree anyway. So the, the, the veil was torn from, the, so the, these sacrifices were done in a way with, like done away, no more. And in 70 AD, the temple was raised down. So what did Jesus say about the law? Let, if we, like we know what Paul says, right? We're familiar with that. But what does Jesus say about the law? It's quite different to some degree. Again, I mean, you can take some verses where Paul says things that are very similar to what Jesus is going to say right here. And what I'm going to quote to you right here is from Matthew chapter 5. You might be familiar with that passage, verses 17, 17 to 20. So Jesus says in Matthew 5, 17 to 20, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. So he's basically saying don't have false thinking, don't have wrong thinking. Don't have perverse thinking about this. I have not come to abolish the law or the prophets, but to fulfill them. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Well, I, I'm looking outside right now. And... There's a heaven right there. I mean, there's, there's, I, I see stuff there. And the earth has not passed away because uh, I just went in my backyard today. So the earth and heavens, they, they haven't passed away. So that means that not an iota or a dot from the law will pass from it until all is accomplished. But then again, people say, well, when Jesus said it is accomplished, what does that mean? Well, that means that there indeed at that moment, there was dots and iotas that did pass away from the law, but not the whole law, because heavens, another thing needed to happen, the heavens and the earth, okay, need to pass away in order for the whole law 
to be abolished. Why? Because I mean, everything's will be perfected. Everything will be perfected when that happens. It's going to be, everything will be perfect. It'll be the full manifestation of the sons of God in their fullness. So there will be no more sin. There will be nothing uh, that the law requires anymore because we will have perfect conduct before the Lord, the, the, the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Okay. So he says in verse 19, therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. It's a powerful, it packs a wallop and it would probably require maybe a couple of sermons just to dive deep into that. But we know that when Jesus said it is accomplished, a part of the law was accomplished. And like I said, that part of the law that was accomplished was everything pertaining to sacrifices and the temple. Okay, so here's another interesting and convicting passage that is from Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 to 23, where Jesus speaks again. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, so he's talking about the day of judgment, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of grace. No, you workers of lawlessness. Lawlessness, huge word, huge word. And we, we need to unpack unpack this word because it's it puts a lot of stuff in perspective. So the word translated lawlessness here is the word where we get the word antinomianism from. It's the word anomia, anomia, which means it's composed of two words, a, a, it means not. And nomos, nomos means law, not law or lawlessness. So properly without law, the utter disregard for God's law. I'm taking this from the Strong's, by the way. His written and living word. Anomia is where we get the word, like I mentioned, antinomianism. And interestingly, those being rebuked here are those who claim they were of him of the household of faith. They say to him, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? This is a very, very telling passage and very sobering passage because that means that you can actually prophesy in his name and cast out demons in his name and do many mighty mighty works in his name and you don't even know it he doesn't even know you you think you know him but he doesn't even know you so this is very very so it's very dangerous when you enter into a greasy grace antinomianism the whole law is done away with 
we don't touch any of the laws because we're under grace and greasy grace this, greasy grace that, because you're actually putting yourself in danger of being told that. And I would I wouldn't want to hear that. I, if there's one thing I don't want to hear is that. So to be clear, all this to say that the laws were that were fully done away with by the coming of Christ and the purpose, the ministry of Jesus are all the sacrificial laws and temple laws. I hope I made that clear. So the Ten Commandments are still up and running. And, and there's some laws in the, the, the feast laws. God said they were forever, if I'm not mistaken. That's still running. There's a bunch of laws that are still up and running, that have not been abolished, that are still there for our, go our good and benefit. Now, are we under grace? Yes. Is God going to strike you with lightning if, if you don't keep the feasts? No. But these laws are still, should still be part of our way of life today, to some degree anyway. Okay. And I'm not going to get into the whole details of that because it's it can be real complex. But I think we need to ask the Holy Spirit to show us the truth in all things to show us when we read the scripture, to discern, okay, what is done away with, what is not. Because I think even Paul kind of took it for granted when he wrote the laws done away with. He, he took it for granted. I'm writing to a lot of people here, and I, I think they're going to know that we're talking about what we used to do, the Hebrews. But it's kind of weird to me because if he was talking to the Gentiles, he should have been maybe more detailed in what exactly was done away with. So, and I know that his letters were not read just by Gentiles only because there was all kinds of people in the churches where he went to that, that, he, uh, that he established. So there were Hebrews there. There were Gentiles, of course, but the, the, it's, it's Paul, like Peter said, <laughs> it's hard to understand. It's hard to understand. And, and I'm not saying we should read Paul. I'm not saying Paul cannot be used for, for, for our Christian walk and our Christian life. I'm just saying it needs to be read with discernment, needs to be read in a certain way, like all the scriptures. But this is the problem where we get these extremes in Christianity and oftentimes denominations. So I want to talk about Malachi chapter three now. As I end it, as I turn the corner and move towards uh I shouldn't say the end of this teaching, but I'm I'm, I'm gonna land the plane for this first part anyway. It's a two-part teaching. Let's talk about Malachi 3. I mean, we're talking about tithing. You're probably familiar with Malachi 3. If you've been to church for a few years and you've never heard a sermon on Malachi 3, you're blessed. I'm saying it out loud. You're blessed. It's a miracle. <laughs> so it's a favorite passage for pastors who preach about the tithe because they're... And, and you know what? A lot of... i got to say this because I, I, the Holy Spirit really highlighted this for me. A lot of them who preach from Malachi 3, verses 8 to 12, when they are trying to bring a message about the tithe, a lot of them are not doing it to manipulate you into giving or to make you feel guilty for not giving or anything like that. I got to say, I think I believe in my heart that some pastors are really uh, sincere and they, they, they really believe that this passage still applies today. Uh, so the passage in Malachi chapter 3, verses 8 to 12, which is a favorite for, for tithing sermons, says this, Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. 
But you say, how have we robbed you? So that's God talking, basically, writing through the pen of Malachi. In your tithes and contributions, you are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you, and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. I will rebuke the devourer, devourer for you, so that it will not destroy the fruit of your soil, the fruits of your soil, and your vine. And uh, in the field you shall not, uh, and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all nations will call you blessed, for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. It's a beautiful passage with great promises attached to it, okay? And I think there's a great principle there that that still does apply to today. But we're going to look at the whole context, try to figure out, okay, well, does this really work for today if you're going to talk about justifying the way we're tithing today? First, the context of this passage concerns the Israelites not bringing their offerings to the temple. Because of their disobedience, God had judged them with a small harvest. So the Lord challenged them to bring the full tithe, not just a part of the tithe, not just a little bit of tithe, the full tithe of what? Of grain sacrifices. So you got to see Leviticus chapter 6, verses 14 to 23 to understand the full context. And see that he would bless them with an abundance of future crops. So the storehouse mentioned in verse 10 is a place to store grain in the temple. Secondly, tithing is mentioned 18 times in the law. As the people were to share their produce and livestock to support the Levites, the caretakers of the tabernacle. This same system of tithing would later be applied to the temple. So it had to do with the, the, the support and care of the Levites, who were full-time caretakers of the tabernacle. And that's found in 2 Chronicles 31.5. Thirdly, this passage teaches that the Hebrews were to give a tithe as part of the temple worship, but it does not teach that Christians are to give to what we have come to call churches today. Malachi was written more than 400 years before the start of the first church in Jerusalem. So applying its command, to, uh, its command of temple giving to the local church takes these verses out of their original context. Also, and more, more importantly, Tithing, as recorded in Malachi 3, had to do with what? I mentioned that earlier. Temple laws. There it is, folks. Temple laws, which were done away with. So this type of giving involving foods brought to the temple for Levites is done away with, just like the temple and its sacrifices were done away with. <clears throat> so, if we were to be faithful to this passage, we'd bring in a tenth of our grocery to the church every week. 
And if you're a farmer, you're bringing a tenth of your crops every week to the church. And you know what? Let's be honest here. This would probably be a better practice than the way we've been doing it anyway. That way we might be able to feed more of the poor in the congregation and outside of it. I'm just saying this. I'm just throwing that your way right now. So, so this is the view on Malachi 3. This is very important to understand because I believe that this is basically showing us that with the temple and its sacrifices being done away with, the tithe as we understand it and as the way it is taught in many, many churches and denominations today has also been done away with. Now, again, I told you in the beginning of this message that I am not teaching this to encourage you to cop out from and to become cheap, because that would definitely put a curse on you, I think, because we're to be a people who are anything but cheap. We are to be a people who are above and beyond generous. And I'm going to be teaching that in the next teaching. I'm going to show you what has replaced the tie or what, what are we to do now? today under the new covenant as ways to give or as to give. And, and if you're tithing, I don't want, I don't think you have to consult the Lord about this. Okay. This is, I don't want to tell you what to do, but you have to consult the Lord about this. If you're tithing, you need to examine your motives before God. How am I tithing? What position am I holding here? What am I, was I, was I told to tithe? Was I, was I guilted into tithing through Malachi three sermons? over and over again? What am I tithing just because it feels so good to give? If you're doing it for that, my goodness, by all means, don't, don't stop. Don't stop. Do keep doing it. So, so I, I think we've covered a lot of material in this first part. Okay. Uh, I'm at page, my goodness, what page is this? I kind of hid my uh, my stuff. Let me check here. I am at page 11. I, I, I went through 11 pages of notes, just so you know. And there's about 20 pages or 21 in this whole teaching. So part two, I'm going to continue talking about the tithe, but I'm going to talk about uh, another, uh, the, the, the subtitle for the next teaching will be this. Moving from lawfully tithing to insanely gracious and generous giving. Now, take good note of this because you won't want to miss this teaching. Moving from lawfully tithing to insanely gracious and generous giving. That's going to that's gonna be the, the, the subject of this, to tithe or not to tithe. That is the question, part two, okay? So, so we talked a lot about about a lot of stuff today. We talked about hermeneutics. We talked about Paul, Jesus, the law, antinomianism, legalism. Uh, is tithing for today? What does the Bible say? So, but the conclusion of the matter is this. It had to do with temple laws. Temple laws were abolished at the cross. Therefore, I believe it has been done away with. So the conclusion that Mr. Dollar had reached was the good conclusion. It was under the law, under temple laws. And because of that, it has been done away with. However, however, I'm going to end with this. We should now give more than ever to the kingdom of God. Because of the excellence of what we have been given. Let me repeat that. 
we should now give more than ever to the kingdom of God because of the excellence of what we have been given. And in the next teaching, I'm, I'm just going to go through that. How is that done? What does that look like? And if, if tithing is not for today, what is for today? And we're going to see what insanely generous, gracious giving looks like. And you won't want to miss this teaching. So I hope this has blessed you. I hope uh, I hope you've you've learned a few things. You maybe uh, I hope I've incited you to go to the scriptures and maybe revisit some of these passages and revisit some of the stuff that you've been taught. And I hope I've encouraged you to put it in prayer, put it in prayer mode, and be like, the way I've been doing it is that the way it should be done. Lord, show me the truth in all things. I want to know your truth above all. I want to worship you in spirit and in truth. I want to be uh, filled with your spirit, walking in giftings and anointings and wonderful things. But also, I want to walk in the truth that you bring, the full fullness of truth that you bring. And you, as you will find, as, as I have found, the fullness of truth is often not found in extremes. It's often found in a balanced combination of the old what we've known from the old and what has been revealed to us in the new and what has been done in our lives by the power of jesus christ by the power and the sacrifice of jesus christ so i hope like i said that this has blessed you and uh, if it has make sure you click the like button it does help don't think it doesn't help when you click that like button when you subscribe to our channel when you share those videos it does help this ministry and if you want to partner with us and give, there's ways to do that as well. I'm going to post the links in the comments. Uh, if you want to either partner with us, there's going to be a link in the comments. But if you want to um, uh, go for, for find more food, uh, more uh, teachings on all kinds of stuff, I can also post uh, um, the link to uh, the Thriving on Purpose Academy. So I will post that as also in the comments. So be sure to check the comments. God bless you. Have a wonderful week. And I will see you next time. Bye-bye. I'm just going to go with the final goodbye. Bless you.